The Parable of the Bags of Gold Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also, the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who re had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant! So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thank you so much, Reba, for uh, praying and uh, reading uh, from God's Word. I wonder if you think about the stories and news of productivity, success and growth. It seems that certainly our society, and I think most, um, are captivated by stories of growth and success. Whether it's uh, unicorn tech firms like PayPal, Amazon, Uber, Facebook and the global impact they have. Or uh, moving away from business, well, why not the world of sport and just how uh, the amazing achievements of athletes and their successes are great good news stories. You think of um, the great British Paralympians at the moment, and particularly uh, Sarah Storey's success, winning her 17th gold uh, medal and, and out one of our most, the most successful GB Paralympian. Who, the, these athletes who have invested so much time, hard work and courage uh, into their successes. And you see, churches are just as much interested in growth and success. Uh, positively, we have Jesus' life-changing awesome good news. 
um, and his church is growing all over the world. We should prayerfully expect his kingdom to grow and for people to come to know him because that's his plan, that's his desire. But then maybe more negatively, if we're honest, when churches fixate on success and growth and define themselves by it, it can become an unhealthy focus. Uh, I've been listening to a podcast by Christianity Today and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church, which is looks at a, a church that was based in Seattle. And it demonstrates the very painful damage and hurt caused when success and being the biggest church becomes the dominant melody for the leadership. So success and growth need to be handled with wisdom and humility. But being productive seems to be hardwired into us. And in many ways, this is a good thing because it reflects the creativity and fruitfulness of God who created us, who knows us, who's given us capabilities to be workers and producers in his world. But does God just see us then as units of productivity? Is he only interested in success stories, in what we can do for him or how much value we can add to his investment? Well, I can appreciate that an initial reading of the parable we've just had, this parable of the bags of gold, or traditionally as it's known, the talents, from that Greek word that's used in uh, verse 15. Um, it can give the impression that the master, Jesus himself, is only interested in success and financial growth. However, as we look closely at this parable today and remember its context, we can see that we're not just units of productivity. We're never viewed that way but trusted servants, known by the master, called to be creative with all the resources Jesus has given us, to invest for his joy and ultimately our eternal happiness. And this parable, just to put it in context, is part of Jesus's teaching to his disciples um, to be ready for his return, his second coming and the final judgment. And that's taken up Matthew's focus in chapter 24 and 25. And it's summed up there in verse 42 of chapter 24. Therefore keep watch, Jesus said, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. And so last week, Adam was taking us through um, the parable of the 10 virgins in verses one to 13 of chapter 25. And if there the call was to be vigilant, the call of this parable here in verse 14 onwards is to be diligent, be vigilant, be diligent as you wait for Jesus's return. And here in verses 14 to 30, we're going to look at what Jesus teaches his followers about what readiness looks like, because the person who is ready for Jesus's return will be faithfully working hard, investing all they have been given in by God in order to grow his kingdom. The person ready for Jesus' return makes the growth of God's kingdom their agenda. And we need to therefore think and ask ourselves, is the growth of God's kingdom top of our agenda? Are we using the resources he's given us in the light of Jesus' return? So um, let's dive straight in and have a look at these verses 14 to 18. Um, and I've just sort of headed this God's resources and our responsibility. And the first thing to note is that the resources the servants were given obviously weren't theirs. It's the master's. Verse 14, it will be like a man going away on a journey, referring to Jesus's resurrection and his ascension to the throne, who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. 
his wealth, it's God's assets. And Jesus is the figure in view here as the master. He's the one who entrusts his wealth to his servants. And this delegation speaks volumes about the type of master Jesus is. He trusts his workers. He is generous. He gives them responsibility. It's a healthy partnership and it's personal. He knows what the servants are capable of and he confidently and generously gives them resources according to what he knows they can manage in verse 15. According to his ability. Now, the second thing to grasp hold of is the extent of the master's generosity. Now, we're told in the footnote in the NIV uh, translation here that they, they've used the, the, the word bag of gold um, to, rep, to, to interpret a talent, which is the Greek word. And a talent was a unit of weight, and its value depended on what material was used, whether it was gold, silver, or copper. And in monetary terms, it's most likely to be silver. Um, but it, we're told there in the footnote, these amounts, five bags, would well, one bag would be worth 20 years wages. So Jesus is deliberately using extraordinary, large, over-the-top sums of money to impress upon his listeners how extraordinary, generous, and the vastness of what the master has entrusted to his servants. So perhaps if we were to talk about um, 50 million, 20 million, 10 million, I mean, those figures probably uh, are way far off what our wages are. But it gives us a sense of the impact of what Jesus wanted his listeners to feel. He is the generous and trusting master. And he knows his stewards personally, and he wants them to be active in all he has given them. But do we understand then that the talents are just purely about money? Well, on one level, the parable would lose its clout if it didn't include money. Um, in verse 18, we're told uh, that the third servant hides the money in the ground. You see, money connects with Jesus' listeners then as it connects with us today, because it's an integral part of everyday life, isn't it? And most people want more of it. So money shows us the state of our heart. It fundamentally has got a grip on us, and we have a grip on it are we greedy and tight-fisted, or are we generous and open-handed? And in terms of stewardship, though, in the light of Jesus' return, the talent obviously includes money, but it's appropriate for us to, to have a far wider application. Our gifts, our abilities, our resources, caring for God's creation, because they are all God-given. And throughout the Bible, God is the source of everything. He is the giver and sustainer of, of life. The Bible tells us he lovingly creates man and woman to bear his image, to represent him on earth, to look after, to develop, to work, to enjoy creation. So in a real way, everything we have in this life is a talent because it is something that can be used to serve God in his world. It can either be invested for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom, or it can be wasted, it can be turned to selfish purposes. So yes, that includes money, it includes our gifts, our time. It also means our families, especially thinking of parents entrusted with children and how we disciple them. Uh, it includes our work and careers, what we hope to achieve through them and why we want to achieve that, how much time we invest in our work and how intentional that is with Jesus's mission and calling for our lives and how that calling is integrated with our work. It includes how we love others, the time we give people, 
the conversations we have, the energy we give to different causes. It includes our minds and what we fill them with and how we use them. It certainly includes, for Christians, the treasure of the good news of Jesus Christ. To steward this good news is not to bury Jesus' gospel or keep it to ourselves, but prayerfully, generously, give ourselves to supporting gospel work, to church planting, mission initiatives, to help people in whatever way we can to engage and hear his gospel. And we need to guard against becoming complacent. Guard against that way of thinking that says, surely I can take it easy. And I think in that point, gratitude to Jesus is one of the most helpful ways to combat complacency. You see, the force of the parable lies in the fact that none of what we have is ours. It's all God's assets. He's generously entrusted them to us to engage with his world. And as we nurture that thankfulness to God, it will translate in generous action to others. It's been such an encouragement to see the response, not just of our church family, but other churches and people organisations to help the Afghan refugees who have been being settled here in Manchester. Immediate help is necessary, and I hope that over the coming months and years ahead, Grace Church will continue to find ways to support and care for the real needs of these refugees, uh, particularly thinking of organisations like Boaz Tr Trust, based here in Manchester, that do an amazing work um, supporting asylum seekers. So God generously gives us his assets, which are our responsibility to invest for his glory. And we can be assured by the fact that he has given them to us fully aware of our capabilities. Isn't that interesting? We don't need to worry about the comparison games. Are we a five talent or ten talent or thirty or one talent type of person? That's to miss the point that Jesus purposefully, deliberately, not randomly, gives us his gifts. He knows us and knows what we can do. Well, just let that truth sink into your heart and mind. The Lord Jesus knows you. He's given you a unique purpose. He's given you unique abilities and responsibilities and creativity to serve him and his kingdom. Well, you might be thinking, yes, but what does that look like? I need help figuring that out. And I appreciate that that is a challenge in everyday life, in the business of things. And here at Grace Church, we would be more than happy to, to walk with you through that and have a chat about what that might look like in your context. I'd suggest start by, uh, why not doing a sort of personal audit? Just make a quick list of the resources, the gifts, the skills, the things you enjoy, the time you have. And, and then think, well, how do I apply that as a Christian to serving Jesus's mission? Uh, Pray for discernment to see the needs uh, in the church, in your community, in your work that you could help with. Where are the connection points? Again, here at Grace, our life groups, the student group at Grace Church, they're good places to explore how we can uh, serve, how we can be a supportive uh, and prayerful community. One book I found useful in just inspiring me is one called Gospel Patrons, written by John Reinhardt, which tells the stories of generous Christians throughout history using their gifts for God's glory. You can find more of that at gospelpatrons.org, and I think there's a note in the comments um, section under the video on that. 
And if you want to explore what good ambition looks like as a Christian, well, I'd recommend James K.A. Smith's talk, Reforming Our Ambition, which you can find on YouTube at the Centre for Faith and Work. They're just a few avenues you might want to explore as you continue to apply what it means to be a faithful and trusted servant, taking responsibility for the gifts you've been given. But then as we move on, let's look at the settling up accounts because this is the majority of the parable, verses 19 to 30. And we see here quite clearly there's reward and rejection. Jesus jumps the story forward, doesn't he? We're not told how long the master is away, but Jesus is clearly preparing his disciples for the fact that there's going to be a long time from his ascension to glory, to ruling at the throne room, and his return for the final judgment. There's a long wait. We're not told what the first two servants did to achieve a 100% return. We're not told whether it was difficult or easy. The main point is the master has returned to collect what is rightfully his. And the two workers who had gained the talents are recognised, aren't they? They're in verse 21 and 23. They're faithful, they're fruitful, they're trustworthy. And they receive the master's seal of approval, his well done. His approval and joy is the best reward. Come and share your master's happiness. Their good stewardship here and now means more responsibility and faithful service in the master's kingdom. I will put you in charge of many things. Why? Because they've been faithful with a few. And interestingly, this points forward to the responsibilities and reward entrusted to Christians as they enter God's eternal kingdom. And again, if you want to listen to a a really good and short podcast on this issue of degrees of reward in Jesus's kingdom, I highly recommend um, Pastor John Piper's uh, podcast, which you can find at desiringgod.org. And um, it's under the series Ask Pastor John, episode 549. And he explores this issue of Will some Christians be happier in heaven? And just to sort of look at that very briefly, let's be clear on rewards here, that our salvation is by grace alone. We're not saved by our obedience, but all that Jesus has achieved in his obedient life, in his death, in his resurrection. And when we enter his kingdom, how his followers have lived here on earth, as this parable is showing us, will be celebrated and rewarded. There will be a difference uh, to that in the age to come. But everyone will be fully happy, will be fully satisfied, will be fully at peace. As John Piper puts it, there'll be no gap between anyone's capacity for joy and their fullness of joy. There won't be frustration, there won't be the envy, there won't be disappointment over these differences because for the first time, we'll experience the perfect love and perfection of God's presence, of his joy in us and our joy in him, and enjoying others' joy as we praise Jesus. In a different way, um, J.C. Ryle, who was the first bishop of Liverpool and a tremendous evangelist and pastor, he, he explained it like this. The Christian will discover to their amazement that the master's eye saw more beauty in their efforts to please him than they ever saw in themselves. We will find that every hour spent in Christ's service and every word spoken on Christ's behalf has been written in a book of remembrance. 
Let believers remember these things and take courage. The cross may be heavy now, the cross we carry, but the glorious reward shall make amends for all. But when we come to look at the third servant, there's a sting, isn't there? The joy of the master with the two servants is contrasted by the judgment with the last servant. He was cast out into darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 30. And, and that's the language Jesus used to speak very clearly about judgment, about hell, the total exclusion from God's kingdom. But what had the third servant done that was so wrong? Is the master just an unforgiving, greedy Scrooge? Is Jesus just a hard-nosed, dollar-driven CEO who takes all the credit for other people's success? Let's look closely at the third servant's explanation, which is very different from the first two. Verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. Firstly, did you notice he doesn't mention, as the other two do, that word entrusted with the gifts. He rejects the truth that the master trusts him. There doesn't seem to be a relationship there in the first place. His excuse, his explanation, shows he rejects the master. This servant didn't really know the master in the first place. You are a hard man. Essentially, you, as we see, you haven't put in any effort. You leave us to it, and when you stroll back when you want, you expect to have the rewards. It's interesting there that I think the tone suggests, as he says, I was afraid, fear-driven. But also, there's anger. Fear and anger seem to motivate him to dig a hole and bury the gold. But how can the master be a hard man when he has entered into a partnership with his workers, when he's unreservedly trusted them with all his assets, how can he be considered tight-fisted when the reward he gives to the first two workers is so vast? The third servant has created a different view of the master that made him a tyrant and a bully boss. And it's a misguided understanding of God, unfortunately one that is still popular today, as many people hold on to it to justify their anger and hurt at God and their rejection of Jesus Christ as the Saviour and Lord who comes to love and rescue them. You see, in Jesus, we have God who pursues us, even when we were enemies, who showed his love for us by dying on a cross to forgive and take away our sin and judgment. We have him who did everything necessary for us to be reconciled into God's family, never to be abandoned. How can this God, how can this master, be a hard person? You see, the third servant doesn't even act consistently with his own view. That's what the master calls out. Because if he was really afraid and wanted to get through the, the judgment, as it were, um, to, to provide something, he could have at least put it on interest, uh, effectively not really doing any work at all, because the bank will look after that. But he doesn't even do that. He's angry. He's rejected. He does not trust the master who trusts him. 
And it isn't just a pity that this uh, third servant didn't put the talent to work. It was a refusal to trust the giver. It was a total rejection. And it was a waste of what he'd been given. Been given so much and just wasted it. Now imagine you've received a windfall from a great aunt and you decide to invest that money. And after 20 years or so, you call up the investment manager, you ask how the portfolio is doing, and they respond immediately by sending an email with a photo of their desk. And you notice under the coffee mug is your check from your great aunt. And the message from the banker just reads, at least it's safe. Well, you'd be entitled to feel angry and frustrated and disappointed and let down. He hasn't done his job and you've been cheated and justice must be served. You see, Jesus is a holy king and if we reject him and his good gifts, ultimately he will give us what we want. He will turn his back on us. He will reject us. He takes no pleasure in that, no pleasure in handing us over to judgment, to hell, a reality without joy, delight and peace. Just the painful anguish of God's righteous anger at our self-absorbed sinfulness, at our wastefulness with all that he's given us. There will be many people, even religious, moral, upright people on the last day who will accuse God of giving them nothing, who trust their own good works with no need for Jesus as a saviour. All they had in this life was the product of their own hard work. The writers of The Simpsons capture this very well when in one scene, uh, Mr. Burns is invited to the Simpson household as a, a dinner guest. And they're sitting at the table and Homer asks, Bart, would you like to say grace? And Bart dutifully bows his head. He puts his hands together. Dear God, he prays, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Everyone gasps. Mr. Burns, though, chuckles, rubbing his hands, and says, Only an innocent child could get away with such blasphemy. God bless them all. Amen. And everyone sighs and starts eating. Well, it's funny because it's so painful. And actually, it's funny because it's also painfully accurate. Thank God for nothing. Thanks to me. There will be a day when we face Jesus, the generous giver, the just judge. And the final accounts will be settled. There will be eternal reward for countless multitude from every nation. And there will be eternal rejection for many others. But there's still time. You see, this parable is given to both warn and encourage. It's not too late. Come to Jesus today. Be the servant who puts God's gifts to work for his glory. Be the servant who knows the love and joy of Jesus the generous king. And as we close, remember, readiness for Jesus' return involves action. And even if you do not believe and still have massive questions about who Jesus is, I can guarantee you're still working towards something in your life. What is it you're investing in? What is it you're working towards? What is it you're preparing for? As followers of Christ, we're called to invest wisely and joyfully to grow God's kingdom. And I ask that 
you'd pray that Grace Church would be a wise and generous, joyful church that's actively pursuing Jesus's mission here in Manchester and beyond. We need to consider where we can serve Jesus's kingdom. As I said before, not just with church, but also with our work in our local neighborhood, with our friends. Has the Lord put on your heart something today or someone today that you know you could serve? And don't feel you need to do it alone. We serve together as a church family. And then check your heart, check your motivations here. Can I ask you, whose well done are you living for? Whose praise are you hungry for? Is it people's? Or would you love to hear the praise of the King of the universe? the creator God who knows you personally, the Lord Jesus. Reflecting on John Coltrane's landmark album, A Love Supreme, in which Coltrane in the, the, uh, the sleeve notes explicitly offers the album as a thank you to God. Um, Pastor Tim Keller writes this, we all work for an audience, whether we're aware of it or not. Some perform to please parents, others to impress peers, others to win over superiors, while many do what they do strictly to live up to their own standards. All of these audiences are inadequate. Working for them alone will lead to either overwork or underwork, sometimes a mixture of two based on who is watching. But Christians, here's the gift of Jesus's good news, but Christians look to an audience of one, our loving Heavenly Father, and that gives us both accountability and joy in our work. So let's find hope and motivation in Jesus's parable to courageously invest all that he has entrusted to us. Let's be grateful for these gifts and resources. Let us set our hearts on the audience of one, Father, Son and Spirit, and faithfully play our part in building his kingdom. Be confident in his love, knowing there will be a day we come face to face with him and can hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for all you have given us and declare using the words of the hymn, Be Thou My Vision, riches we heed not, nor vain empty praise, thou mine inheritance now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Holy Spirit, make us generous and courageous servants, investing all we've been given for Jesus's kingdom as we look forward to his return. For your glory, Father, Son and Spirit. Amen.